James, the brother of Jesus, knows his dispersed flock. They're poor, they're being persecuted in the cities that they fled to. However, even though he knows that their lives are very difficult, and he's been very upfront with them. And this is really hard for a pastor to do. When somebody is going through a difficult time, it's hard for a pastor to look at them and say, don't you give up, God is growing you, and God has something for you in this. All people usually want to hear from a pastor is, it'll be okay. They don't want to hear the hard thing that you need to be in this. God wants you to be in this. Now, I'm not saying there's, a balance, there's not a balance there, but James is saying to these people who are poor, who are displaced, who are not around family members, he's saying, God is doing something, and I'm not going to let you rest. I'm not going to let you have a woe-is-me victim mentality because God's in control of this. There's not a Christ follower here this morning who should ever allow a victim mentality to come into their hearts. Because we are victorious through Jesus Christ no matter what situation we live in. And if we allow ourselves to have a woe is me victim mentality, then we are not going to be lights to the world. All we're going to be is just like the world. And James is not letting his people have a victim mentality. And so throughout James, he has built for them a very clear image of what God is molding every genuine Christ follower into. He's painting a picture. He's saying this is what all of us should look like spiritually. Who is he molding us to look like? His son, Jesus Christ. God is in the process of molding every single one of his people to look more and more like his son. And we see that in Romans 8, 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? Be conformed to the image of his son. What What does God want you to become? Just like Jesus Christ. He wants you to become formed to His image. We also see it in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, everybody read this with me, we shall be like Him. That's the goal. And we can't do that with a victim mentality. Part of God's process for molding us is our own personal discipline and obedience to God's Word. That's part of His ordained process. He moves within each of us through the Holy Spirit to desire the changes that He's making. He moves each and every day to change us to be more like His Son. And we see that here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as my, in my presence, but much more in my absence. What does He say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So work it out. Here's that. This is our own process. This is part of our discipline and our obeying God's word. Who is helping us do that? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen. We don't have to do the first part without the second part. Because we would always fail in the first part without God's help. And this is why James is so important for us to study. It gives us a picture of what life, a life of faith should look like day in and day out in a pagan culture. And you've heard me say it a hundred times throughout this series. We live in a pagan culture. We live in a culture that does not want us around. And living day in and day out is going to start to cost us even more today than it was 10 years ago. I have a relative who just called me here not too long ago and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to make a decision. Because if I do what my job wants me to do, I'm going to be fired. But I can't do what my job wants me to do because it's not what God wants. He's living it right now. In 2023. And he knows that he will lose his job if if he doesn't do it the way his company wants him to. James's letter is the spiritual mirror that we need to look at every day just so we can make sure that we are obeying and walking in God's Word and becoming what Christ want, God wants us to be. How many of you here look in the mirror 
every day of your life. Come on. I think everybody does, right? Every morning, sometimes after lunch, you know, get that thing out of your, that little piece of stuff out of that leaf out of your tooth, you know. We look in the mirror for our physical presence all the time because we want to make sure that we are presentable in our situation, right? But how many of us look on a regular basis in the spiritual mirror just or presenting ourselves like Jesus Christ every day, day in and day out? And that's what James does. He sets it up to where when we read through James and when we understand what he's saying, he's making us look in that spiritual mirror. He's making us look at how we're dressed spiritually and how we're acting spiritually and how we're moving spiritually. James expects his flock to grow and flourish as Christ followers. He expects them to not just survive in difficult situations. He wants them to embrace their trials and tribulations. He wants them to rejoice in them because God is doing a great work through them. And James isn't going to let them just sit back and moan and whine about how bad life is. Living lives of practical faith day in and day out, like James is presenting to us in front of a sinful world, is the only way that the gospel is really ever going to make a difference to anybody's lives. They need to see that you and I are different on so many different levels. We're different in what is primary in our lives, how we use our time, how we spend our money, how we develop our relationships, how we stay married in difficult times, how we raise our kids, how we work, how we build careers, how we spend our discretionary time. All of that, in a spiritual way, affects how we witness to the world. And so many times, if we're not constantly looking in the mirror to evaluate we're going to let things drift into our lives that is going to hinder our witness to a great extent. And so this morning, as we continue in this study, we're going to be in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It is on page 1291 of your pew Bible. James chapter 5, verse 12. James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach this single verse, we ask and pray that you would help us see where we're at, where we need to go. Father, help us to look in our in the mirror, our spiritual mirror, and to be challenged, to be encouraged, and Father, to praise your name that you have helped us understand who we're supposed to be in Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. One of the first things you're ever going to find out about this passage, about this one single verse, is it's a really difficult passage. There is difficulty surrounding James chapter 5, verse 12. It's really difficult to see how this verse fits into the flow of everything that James has been talking about. This has been debated a long time. How does this fit in to James's point? This one verse seems to just be thrown in by James, like a tidbit of truth that's really not connected to anything. And we even see that this, this confusion or this not understanding how it connects necessarily is, shows up in our translations because I am sure that here this morning, out of all the Bibles that are here, from the King James to the ESV to the NIV to the Holman, all of you are going to see one of these three translations in your Bible. Some of them say, the first three words would say, but above all. Some of those, your translations will say that. Others will leave out the but and just say, above all. And others will say, now, above all, there's really no consensus, and there's really no way to get consensus on how it's connected. None of these translations are wrong because they don't change the truths of what James is teaching. They just show the differences in how scholars feel this verse connects with James's flow throughout the letter. I believe that the clearest translation is now, above all. I just think it fits in with the flow better. What James is saying here is now that I'm closing. Above all, 
He's finishing his letter. He is beginning his actual closing statements. He's saying, now, above all, as we finish, as we come to a close here, let me bring some final thoughts to your minds about living your faith practically. He is going to start closing his letter with something that he has talked about throughout his whole letter, and that is our speech, our tongues. I knew that James talked a lot about the tongue and about the speech and about how, how what we uh, say comes from our hearts. I understood that, but until I really started to do some study on it, until we started going through this series, I never understood how much James talks about how we talk. It is the most significant theme in all of James because he keeps coming. He starts with it in chapter 1. We see a big section on it in chapter 3. We see it over and over and over where James is talking about how we speak and how our speech shows what our heart is, what's in our hearts. God's people speak differently than those who are not saved. Bottom line, throughout all of James, this is what the main point about speech you and I, if we claim salvation in Jesus Christ, we are going to speak differently because our hearts have been changed. So how does this verse add to what James has already talked about regarding the tongue? What is he saying? Is he just repeating something or is there something new here? What James is ultimately writing about in this verse is this idea. We are truthful in our speech. The last thing he says about our speech before he closes his letter is Christ followers are truthful in our speech. All the time, in every situation, there is no gray, there is no slyness, there is no setting aside or spinning. We are just upfront and truthful in our speech. He is not talking here about bad language. When you read in chapter in verse 12, he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear. He is not talking here about bad language, cussing. The swearing that James is talking about is the making of oaths and vows. That is the swearing that he's talking about. It's about oaths and vows. James is so concerned about his people being truthful in their speech, in their oaths and how they handle their oaths and vows, that he is going to close his letter on speaking about being truthful. And so the reason why he's doing this is because fallen mankind are habitual liars. Fallen mankind are habitual liars. Did you know that that includes you? Think about how many times you've lied or shaded the truth or spun something a little bit or restated something that made you look in a better light than you should have. Or the fish thing, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or you set your deer up on the, up on the hood of the car and get it just the right angle to make it look like it's bigger. Don't ask how I know how to do that. I like how John MacArthur put it. Children lie to their parents, and parents lie to their children. Husbands lie to their wives, and wives lie to their husbands. People lie to their employers, who in turn lie to them and often to the public. Politicians lie to get elected and continue to lie once they're in office. People lie to the government, perhaps most notably on their income tax returns. Educators lie, scientists lie, and members of the media lie. Our society is built on a framework of lies, leading us to wonder whether our social structure would even survive if everyone was compelled to speak the truth. Just think of what happened to our culture if it was impossible to lie Every time you said something, you were compelled, whether you wanted to or not, to state the truth. You know, we all have, we have the, the, the funny things. Dear, how do you like my dress? It's okay. First of all, she already picks up on what? That it's just okay. Second of all, in the mind, a lot of times the guys are saying, whoa, that's not good. And as we think about all those situations where if we were just forced to tell the truth, what that would do to our lives? What would that would do to our societies? What would that do to the media and the elections that are coming up? Think, think about that. 
The fact that unredeemed people are habitual liars should not surprise anyone who has ever read the Bible. The Bible is clear. Unsaved folks are children of Satan. And since Satan is the father of lies, his children will naturally follow in his footsteps. And they're going to be habitual liars. We see that in John 8, 44. You are of the father of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And if he is your father, which he is, if you are unsaved, guess what you do just like your father? Lie. The basic truth means we cannot just take people at their word. So we have to have things like oaths and vows and written contracts to force people to to be truthful and to keep their promises. That's why oaths and vows and contracts exist, because we know people do what? Lie. Simple promises by children, formal oaths and legal systems, legal contracts, and even peace treaties are proof of mankind's basic dishonesty from the heart. James was very aware of this dishonesty because it was a major part of the Jewish culture that he grew up in and now that he was a pastor in. James understood that this was part of the Jewish culture. And this is the context that we need to come at this passage in. The Jews had developed the practice of swearing false, evasive, deceptive oaths by everything other than the name of the Lord, which was really the only oath that was binding. The whole point was they were swearing by other things about heaven, by earth, by God's footstool, by whatever, okay, so that they could do what? Be like a little child. Johnny, do you promise to do that next time and I won't get you in trouble this time? Yes, mommy, I promise. And what's he doing behind his back? Crossing his fingers, because crossing the fingers means what? What he just said really wasn't binding. Now, the Jewish... Folks didn't cross their fingers behind their backs, but what they swore on, what they took oaths on as part of their normal culture day in and day out would allow them to manipulate the situation so they didn't have to keep their oaths and vows. And what did James know was going to happen in the church who was mainly full of Jewish folks who were spread out in the region? What was going to be a natural reaction for them to do to each other? Take oaths and vows flippantly. And that's what James is talking about here. James was concerned that this practice would crop up in the church because it was made up, like I said, of mostly displaced Jews. But James is going to be very clear here. Believers are so truthful in their speech that they should be able to be trusted to keep their oaths and vows no matter what with just a simple yes or no. That would be, if we say something, if we say yes to something or agree to something or we say no to something, what should we as Christ followers be known as? Whatever they say is exactly what they're going to do every time, even if it is to their hurt. He's speaking about truthfulness, truthfulness in our speech. But James opens chapter 5, verse 12 with the phrase, above all. Above all, my brothers. This doesn't mean that James is saying that the issue of wrongly motivated swearing takes precedence above everything else he's written. Above all, as we've said, is a way of introducing the final remarks of his letters. He is saying, as I speak, as I write this, I want you to pay close attention as I deal once again with the believer's speech. And then he's going to talk about prayer as he closes, the confessions of sin and reaching out to straying brothers. That's what the, the sermons we have coming up in the future. And so James begins to address this next phrase in verse, in verse 12 as the restriction. The restriction. Look at verse 12 again. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. As I said before, he is not writing about illicit speech, dirty talk, filthy jokes, or four-letter words. We've already seen Paul address those issues when Michael read our passage this morning. Paul addresses those words, but that's not what James is doing here. Taking an oath was to call God as a witness of an agreement between two witnesses. And whatever the parties had agreed to, 
it would be very serious to go against that oath, against that vow, against that contract when God was the basis of their oath because they would find sure judgment from God if they broke that oath. And that's why they didn't want to have God be the binding agent. They wanted, as we just read, they wanted to get around it by saying by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. They would find a way, any way, that somebody would accept their oath, accept their vow, except by saying, I'm going to do this as God is my witness. They didn't want to go there. The truth that mankind are liars means that we have to have oaths. We have to have them. It's not wrong to take an oath when we're testifying in court or being ordained to get married. Oaths are wrong when they are misused with an intent to deceive others or when taken rashly or flippantly. What we see is James is saying, this is not how you should swear or take an oath. Don't try to find some way to bind your oath with somebody besides God. He doesn't want that. But we need to understand that he does not outright condemn oaths and vows. And there are so many. I, I had so much trouble trying to pick out passages where we see oaths, people taking oaths in the Bible. So if you want to, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, starting at verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me, hereby God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. and You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took the uh, sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe, uh, ewe lambs of flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he, Abraham, said, these seven ewe lambs will, you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Here we see a contract being made between Abimelech and Abraham. Abimelech, Abimelech had stolen a well from Abraham. And Abraham wasn't happy about it. And so they come together and they're going to come out with a situation or come out with a, a contract. And basically, Abraham is saying, as a witness, that this is my well and that you're not going to bother me about this well anymore. Here is some livestock that will prove that you agreed with me. They just signed a contract. Abimelech was making an oath to Abraham, and Abraham was making an oath to Abimelech, saying, The well belongs to whom? Abraham's. And we have another one. Turn to Genesis 24. Genesis 24. Start in verse 1. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to a servant, the oldest of his household, who had, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord your God, the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, of, and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. What did Abraham want his servant to do? Promise me that you will not take a wife for my son from the Canaanites. Make sure that it is from the Jews or from my family. Again, we see that all through the Old Testament, we see oaths like this, vows, contracts being written. It's all through the Old Testament. We see David swearing oaths with Jonathan and with Saul and with Shimei and God. And Paul, the apostle, took a Nazarite vow. If we move all the way up to the New Testament, and a Nazarite vow set somebody apart to God for a certain amount of time. And we see that Paul did this in Acts 18, 18. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Chantres, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. At the end of a Nazarite vow, they had to let their hair grow long during the vow. At the end of that vow, they were to cut that hair off and they would offer that hair to God at the end of that vow. Here we understand that Paul had made a vow to God to set himself apart to God for a certain length of time. We don't know how long that was. But we see Paul making a vow. We see Old Testament saints making a vow. Over and over we see this. We also know that wisely swearing oaths is not wrong because God himself has sworn some oaths, hasn't he? 
if you're familiar with the Bible. God didn't have to swear an oath because there was any question about his truthfulness, but he did so to set it a, uh, an example of integrity, what it meant to be a man of integrity or woman of integrity. He says, I'm truthful. There's not a problem with that with me, but I'm going to vow. I'm going to take an oath so that you understand what it means and what it means to keep it with integrity. And we see that Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for a confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchanging, the unchangeable character, of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And who did he swear by? Himself. Because you swear, you take an oath based on something that is greater than you. True? We swear between in front of a court or a judge. When you get a marriage license and a certificate, you swear before whom? The person performing the wedding. And they have to sign off saying that there was a vow, an oath taken, and they sent it to the state because the person who is overseeing the wedding is the person who is, has the authority. And God, there is nobody higher than God, and God promised to Abraham, I will increase your people to become a nation, and I'm going to promise this to you in a way that you'll understand, in a way that will show you what it means to take a vow, what it means to have a vow with integrity, I'm going to swear this by myself, that whatever happens in this world, whatever happens in the timeline of this world, your, prosper, your people will become a nation. And he swore. And we understand that oaths and vows, that James is not condemning them because we see so many people in different ways taking oaths and vows. We also get the idea, biblically, that the seriousness of taking oaths is underscored by the consequences of making foolish ones. Did you know that there are some really foolish oath-taking in the Bible? And there are some severe consequences. If you look at uh, Joshua, in Joshua 9, you can write this down, Joshua 9, starting in verse 3, Joshua took a foolish oath. He had the Hivites come to him, and they looked, they had dressed themselves like they had traveled a long distance, and their clothes were tattered, and their bread was moldy, and they came to him and said, Joshua, please don't hurt our nation. Take a vow, promise us that you will leave us alone, that you will not come into our land and take us. And instead of going to God and asking God what he should do, Joshua, in his own reasoning, said, they've come from a long way. They're not going to bother us, because he looked at them as what? Being disheveled and not having enough food. Their trip was a long time. But they were actually close neighbors. They had tricked Joshua into giving them an oath. And you want to know something? God made that oath stand. God would not let them out of that oath. It was a foolish oath. And there was great consequences because the Hivites were a pain to the Israelites for decades, for hundreds of years. And then we also uh, turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 7. And this is Herod's foolish vow cost John the Baptist his life. And so a young girl came and danced before Herod, and he was impressed. And so he, gave, he promised an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And so she immediately went to her mom, and her mom said, give me the head of John the Baptist. So the young lady went to where? Back to Herod and said, what? I want the head of John the Baptist. And look what he says. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given, and he beheaded John the Baptist because of a foolish oath. Foolish and frivolous vows and oaths have serious consequences. There are so many examples of oaths throughout God's Word. Therefore, we know that James is not commanding oaths and vows in general to be sin. He is not only condemning, he is only condemning swearing of oaths that are intended to deceive others or when taken rashly or to made, be made flippantly or to be self-centered like the Jews were used to doing. 
James is not teaching something new here. He learned it from his brother, Jesus Christ. James didn't just come to this on his own. Remember who his brother was, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And look what he says, what Jesus is saying here. See if it sounds familiar in Matthew chapter 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is, his, it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair uh, white or black. Let what you sim- say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes, what? From evil. Who did James learn this from? His own brother. And James is telling his people, stop these oaths. Don't allow them to come into the church. And James moves on and instructs us that Christ followers should just simply use straightforward and honest speech. He instructs us. Look at the last part of James 5.12. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. People of integrity have no need to swear elaborate oaths to convince others of their truthfulness. People of integrity will never swear falsely to deceive people. Christ followers are known or should be known as people who keep their word so much so that all they have to say is yes or no, and everybody knows that it is absolutely certain that what they have agreed to will happen no matter what he says that is who we are as christ followers that is what we are as we become more and more like jesus christ we even though we live in a world and we do use oaths and contracts and vows and stuff but he says as people as a people we are known to be truthful in all that we say simply and upfront. No grayness, no hiding, no uh, trying to shade it just a little bit. We are just truthful and upfront. And that's what James is saying here. He says, let our speech be simply yes or no. Remember earlier what Michael read. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak in truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We should be people who speak the truth to one another. We are people who speak the truth to everybody we come in contact with because we are like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Speaking the truth in every situation will cause believers to shine forth in the dark world of lies. And so what's the motivation for Christ followers to evaluate their lives, to make sure their oaths are made with integrity? What's the motivation? We see that at the very end of verse 12. So that you may not fall under condemnation. So that you may not fall under condemnation. And you know what he's talking about there? The assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation. Here again, James is pointing out that if Christ followers' life continues to be characterized by a heart attitude that uses oaths as an evil, in an evil way, there can be no assurance of salvation. He's going, if your speech, which reveals your heart, continues to give oaths like the Jews give oaths, if you continue to use oaths to gain favor, to lie, to cheat, to steal, he says that is proof in itself that your heart has not been changed by Jesus Christ. Because Christ followers don't do that. They can't because they have the Holy Spirit living within them. Again, James points out how much a person's speech reveals the state of their heart. We have seen throughout James's letter that the pattern of behavior all Christ followers find themselves growing into is also a test of assurance for our faith. The Greek word that James uses here helps us understand he is not referring to God's discipline of believers. He is not talking to believers here or about believers when he says, so that you may not fall under condemnation, because the Greek word isn't used that way. The Greek word for condemnation is never used in the New Testament to regard a believer's discipline. It never is. It's always used to talk about judgment, the passing of a sentence. Uh, It's used in John chapter 5, uh, verse 22, to talk about the uh, uh, passing a a judgment, a a sentence. 
In Acts chapter 8, verse 33, it describes Christ's judgment in Pilate's hands. Paul uses it to speak of God's judgment on sinners in 2 Thessalonians 1.5. And Peter uses it to refer to the condemnation of sinners on the day of judgment. It's always used in the, with the idea of a judgment, not a discipline. The sobering warning that James has given at the end of verse 12 is that those who continue to use oath in the manner that he's referring to have shown that their hearts really haven't been changed by Christ. They can't have been. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with being truthful all the time because we will all struggle with that. But it's not a pattern of our lives. And when we find out that we have not been truthful, when we find out that we have taken frivolous oaths, we find out that our speech is not truthful, we are the first people to go and to talk to somebody and look at them and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It's not a pattern of our lives. We don't plan to be untruthful so that we can gain. And we have to understand something. Something as simple as lying on your tax returns, even a little bit. When you sign the bottom of your tax form, you're saying what? This is true. And my signature, what? Validates that truth. And if your tax records are not true, you just made a frivolous oath because you are saying, on my integrity, what I have submitted is right and true. And so those types of things show up in so many areas of our lives. And we need to be understand that that is not what James is talking about because we do make mistakes and we do have to correct them, and we do have to ask for forgiveness. But he's talking about here when he says, beware of the condemnation of judgment. The idea of judgment there is if this is a pattern of your life, you need to look in the mirror and make a really hard decision. Has my heart been changed really by Jesus Christ? Because if it has, I can't do these things as a pattern of life. I can't. I can't. Genuine faith always leads to a pattern of truthful speech in a Christ follower's life. Genuine faith always leads to a pattern of truthful speech in a believer's life. So now we get a chance to look in the mirror as we close this morning. It's been clear throughout James's letter that he is quite concerned about his flock and the way that they walk day in and day out in their speech and in the controlling of their tongue. He wants them to walk in a way where, where with God's help they can be known as people with tamed tongues. And why is this so important? Because we have to still grapple with what we say always starts from the heart. What we say begins in our heart and reveals what our heart is. There is nothing that you will ever say or speak that is not controlled by the heart. And so your pattern of speech, what you're known for in your speech, reveals to everybody outside who you really are. And we have to understand something. Maybe we've gotten really good at keeping our speech to ourselves. But if our heart is thinking it, if our heart wants us to say it, and we have the discipline to hold it back, have we still used wrong speech? Yep. It's still a sin. Because it's what's in our heart. Hearts that have been changed by genuine faith in Jesus Christ will result in speech that will build each other up. Hearts that have not been changed by genuine faith, by genuine faith in Jesus Christ, they will be condemned in their speech. James is not the only writer that has spent a lot of time on speech. And so... How are we going to look in the mirror this morning? I want you to silently read the passages that I'm going to put on the screen, and I'm going to read them to you. You already know what James has said. We've seen some other passages, but there's some other verses, and there are literally hundreds of them in the Bible, hundreds of them in the Bible that talk about our speech and what it should be and what it should not be. So as you look in the mirror today, as I read these things, you ask yourself, how am I doing? 
what does the mirror show about my spiritual heart? What does my speech tell about my heart? So this is going to be a time of prayer. You'll have to not necessarily bow your heads because you're going to want to read or listen, but evaluate as I read these to you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. How's your talk? How's your speech? Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Is your pattern of speech acceptable to the Lord? Is that a heart's desire for you as you look in the mirror? Proverbs 21:23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Is that a pattern of your life? Psalm 37, 30 through 31. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. Does that describe you in your speech as a pattern of life? Proverbs 15, 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. How many walking wounded are there out there because of your speech? Or, as a pattern of life, the people that walk around you, the people who know you, are you a tree of life? Do you bring encouragement and fruitfulness to their lives because of your speech? Matthew fifteen eleven, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. What do you see in the mirror this morning about your speech? Is it patterned by truthfulness? By a heart that drives you to be truthful? And then finally, the last one, we've already read this. I just want us to leave with this one. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's very easy to understand. But what is supposed to come out of our mouths? But only such as good for building up. And it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Nothing should ever come out of your mouth that is not intended to build somebody else up. How you doing looking in the mirror? All of us struggle. None of us are going to be perfect at this. But God says, if we are faithful and just, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. If we do what? Confess. But what's your pattern of life?